Amen. I don't know if you've ever had um, a car that you've had for a number of years, and after a while, there seems to be those odd sort of noises that sort of tend to bounce around it. And you, you get that feeling, I need somebody to look under the hood and kind of tinker about a bit and, and check how it's going. And it's funny, isn't it, how with things in our lives, we, we kind of try and track them, we try and look after them. Uh, and there's an opportunity for us to take some time to think about our relationship with God, our discipleship, to kind of look under the hood a little bit and think about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean for me to look at the teachings of Jesus and to try and apply them to my life, to ask the key question of, am I still following Jesus? Do I still want to follow Jesus? Is that still a, a passion for me? Uh, so there's a discipleship group, we've run this four times now, this will be the fifth time we've run it, uh, called BLESS. Uh, BLESS stands for being. We seek to be with Jesus first and out of that to be like Jesus. Uh, we think what it means to be loved by Jesus and then to be loving like Jesus in our world. Uh, at that point, we're usually thinking about the fact that we need to be empowered, that we cannot do that by ourselves. So what does it mean to live in the power of the Spirit? And then the fact that you and I, every single day, are sent by Jesus. Where you will be today and tomorrow is not a coincidence, it's a calling, it's a commissioning. How do we live with that awareness in our lives? And all of that takes sacrifice. And so the purpose of the group is to look at this together and to support one another in what that means. Uh, we've had a great time doing this four times. I've learned something every time I've done it. Really looking forward to doing it again. So that's going to start on a Tuesday evening here in the, the church lounge. If you don't know, you can get in via the, the lane door. Uh, 7 o'clock till 8.30 uh, on a Tuesday. It takes about... 12 or 13 weeks, depending on how concise I can be, so 14 or 15 weeks to go through, no, 12 or 13, uh, to go through Blessed Together. Uh, and if this is something that you'd really love in this season to explore, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus? I would love to walk with you. And if that's a passion that you've got, I'd love you to walk with me as we explore this uh, together. So please do grab me uh, if you'd like to be part of that group. It starts on Tuesday the 28th of Feb, so you've got a few weeks uh, to work it out. But it's an open invitation. Anyone, uh, any age, any experience of faith. Uh, if you've done it before, I know a few people now have done it twice and found that beneficial. Uh, if you've done it and missed parts of it because of different commitments, uh, you're more than welcome to join us uh, for that. But let me know, uh, and uh, I'd love you to be part of that group. Uh, the other thing to mention is that uh, running up to Easter, uh, I'd love us to have in the daytime, so this would be an afternoon group, uh, a book club together. Uh, how many people here love books? That's not enough. You should love books. Books are amazing. Uh, well, there's an amazing book by a guy called Max Licardo, amazing author, called He Chose the Nails. And the challenge with this book is to read as much as you can without being moved to tears. It's a, a beautiful, beautiful book that walks with Jesus through the events uh, of Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, uh, Easter Saturday, and Easter Sunday as well. And so the plan would be, these, they're not long chapters, but would be to read two chapters a week. And I promise you they're short. There's some study notes at the back, so it's not even as big as it looks. Uh, and then just to gather together and to share what spoke to us uh, as we journey through that together. So if you'd like to be part of that group, uh, which starts in a few weeks' time, do grab me uh, and uh, we can share about what that looks like. 
So we come in this morning to God's Word. In just a moment, we're going to turn to Daniel uh, chapter 2. We're going to pick up where Richard, a couple of weeks ago, uh, left off for us, verse 24. But let me just give us a quick recap of Daniel so far before we dive back in. So in the ancient world, there was a new world superpower on the scene, Babylon, a name that was synonymous with military power and domination. And as a force, they are sweeping across the known world, conquering peoples and tribes and nations and cities. And eventually they reach Israel's borders. They cross those borders. They come to the capital, Jerusalem, which was thought to be an unsaleable city because of its position and its resources. And they lay siege to that city for two years. And eventually the city falls. And the people of Israel are led off into captivity, into exile. They're scattered among the nations. Uh, a few of them are chosen for special treatment, for training in Babylonian's university. Uh, one of the interesting things about Babylon is it's quite interested in wisdom. And so as it conquers a nation, if there's knowledge there, if there's wisdom, they want to learn from that. And so the brightest and best are taken out of that nation and taken to Babylon, the capital of this empire, and trained in the king's own palace. And a man called Daniel is taken and chosen to be trained, and three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, are trained along there with him. There's something that happens in the first chapter, which I won't go over now. If you want to catch up on that, it's all on YouTube. But for chapter 2, the King Nebuchadnezzar is having a nightmare, literally. He's having a nightmare. One of the interesting things about Babylon is that they have this sort of multiple sort of multiplicity of gods, worshipping everything and everything they can, things in the sky, things in nature, <coughs> excuse me, as a way of trying to control it, as a way of trying to exercise power. <coughs> but what that leaves them with is an atmosphere that's intensely superstitious. Have I said enough prayers to that god? Have I done enough to appease this god? And so for King Nebuchadnezzar, a recurring nightmare is petrifying. What if... The gods are trying to speak to me, and I don't understand. He's petrified by this. So as we saw in the first part of that chapter, he calls the Magi together, which is what the wise men of Babylon were called. All these people from different nations that had been through the training of Babylon, so not Daniel and his friends yet, but that's the group they're being groomed for. He calls them together, and he says to them, tell me my dream and interpret it for me. And if you can't do that, I'll put you all to death. He's a lovely guy, Nebuchadnezzar, a great bloke. Um, some of you have had bosses like this, I know. You'll, you'll identify. So the, the wise men of Babylon say to him, tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it for you. And he sees this as a sort of a, a play for time, really. He sees it as a political move. If they know my nightmare, they'll know what I'm scared of. They'll know my, my weaknesses. They'll know what worries me. So he says to them, no, you tell me my dream." And then tell me the interpretation, and I'll know you can do it. Of course, none of them can do it. So Nebuchadnezzar issues the execute order. So this whole strata of leadership is about to be not just demoted, killed, including those training in Babylon's university. And that's where we pick up the story uh, in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, 
and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king said to Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the vision that passed through your mind as you lay on your bed with ease. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I am of greater wisdom than any other living men, but so that you might know, O king, you may know the interpretation and may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, the arms and chest of silver, its bellies and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken into pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in, in the summer. The wind then swept through without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it for the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hand he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some strength of iron in it, as you saw the iron mixed with clay. And the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so its people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. This dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and offered him an offering and incense to be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. <clears throat> For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler of the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge over all its wise men. Moreover, at David, Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. An incredible chapter, incredible story in the unfolding story of God's people. I want to start today by addressing uh, an accusation. Uh, somebody came up to me quite recently and said to me, whenever Wales play rugby and they win, we hear about it on a Sunday. <laughs> and whenever Wales play rugby and they lose, which I know is a very rare occurrence, you don't seem to mention it. So the Bible does tell us to bless our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you're Irish today, we want to welcome you in Jesus' name. <laughs> Not a great match to watch. How many of us saw it yesterday? There'll be prayer ministry for those of us who did after the service. I'll be honest, I was, I was watching the game, but um, happily there was a bit of a distraction. Early uh, that day, we'd met up with one of Amy's friends from high school. Uh, she didn't have friends in high school, someone that she was friends with when she was in high school. And we were uh, catching up with her after a long, long time. And one of her kids, a guy called Iva, lovely child, has got something called Angelman Syndrome, an extremely rare condition. Some of you may have heard of it because I found out only this morning Colin Farrell's son has got it. He's trying to raise uh, awareness and, and funding for research for it. This gorgeous child... It's a genetic disorder, which means although he'll grow physically, uh, mentally he will not grow any older. And so, as you can imagine, that presents them with all kinds of, of challenges, all kinds of struggles for him personally, uh, and for them as parents and, and as a family together. And a little part of me thought, how is that fair? Have you ever seen those situations where Nobody deserves it. Nobody asks for it. It's just plain unfair that he's going through that and will continue to go through that through his life. There are things, don't they, that, that we face which seem so, so big, questions that are asked of us and asked of each other that are, are too big to fit in a nice, neat little box. I'd love to read something to you that was written by somebody that works for the uh, Langham Partnership, a great organization that produces books and training for church leaders where it's difficult to get access to books and training. Uh, he happens to work in the Ukraine. So recently has been reflecting on what it means to be a faithful Christian in a war zone, what it means to follow Jesus when your life, your livelihood is literally uh, on the line. And he talks really powerfully about the view of God from that situation. He says that looking at a well from the outside looks very different than being at the bottom of the well. And so he's writing from the bottom of the well. He 
He writes, during this war, I've become increasingly aware of how emotional and geographic proximity relates to the perception of information. For our friends abroad, the news of the Ukrainian tragedy could just remain a piece of information about events in a neighboring country. For us, it is the destruction of our worlds, our families, and our futures. Even the most sympathetic cannot experience what we're experiencing here on an existential level. Peering into a well and being at the bottom of one are completely two different experiences. Who knows how to pray with a woman who was raped by a Russian soldier for a week and then watch him shoot her sick mother when the woman refused to go with him to Russia? What words can be said to the elderly residents of an assisted living facility that was ruthlessly turned to rubble by a tank? How does one comfort a wife whose husband ran out to get help as she went into labor but was killed outside their house? How do we begin to mourn over nameless civilians who have been tortured beyond recognition and now even beyond identification? I've realized that theoretical answers I might have formulated prior to this war didn't adequately prepare me for the actual words and deeds needed in reality. How is that fair? And in big ways and in small ways, each of us will face a situation where we have to work out, God, where are you in all of this? What are you doing? What am I expected to do in response to you? How can I pray? How can I trust? How can I follow? How can I hope? God, where are you in all of this? And Daniel today offers us a perspective from both the bottom and the top of the well. And that's what we're going to be diving into this morning. That's what's at stake in this dream. So I want to walk you through the dream really briefly and then its interpretation and we're going to seek to try and apply that to our lives today. So Nebuchadnezzar, it's interesting that he should have a dream about a statue. King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the things we know from history was that he loved to build. He was a prolific builder. He's always throwing up houses and temples and expanding. He loved statues and in the next chapter, we're going to, uh, or the next a couple of chapters, we're going to hear about a very famous statue that King Nebuchadnezzar builds. But this statue troubles him. It bothers him. In the dream, in the interpretation, it's broken into four separate chunks. And those chunks are divided by the type of material. And so one of the things that's quite obvious as you look at this statue is that it goes from really high quality at the top to lesser quality as it goes down. So we're told it has a golden head. You can just begin to imagine, can't you, what this would cost. An enormous statue like this with an enormous head on it. The, the amount of gold, it would be so lavish, so luxurious. In the ancient world, they did build statues. Nobody's building statues with gold. I mean, it's just it's bizarre. Unless you're fabulously wealthy and confident that that wealth will last forever, it's a ridiculous thing to do. But gold speaks about riches, doesn't it? It speaks about wealth. 
Gold is often used as well as a status symbol as well, isn't it? If you wear lots of gold, you've got lots of power, got lots of, you can afford to do that, got lots of options, got lots of uh, economic freedom. So gold is often a, a symbol of status. Uh, quite often as well, we think of it as being the best of the best, don't we? So if we're thinking about an age of history, thinking, wow, that was, a, that was the best time for them, we talk about a golden era. And so this statue begins well. In the dream, it doesn't start bottom up, it starts top down, uh, and it starts well, a golden head. But then the next level is made of silver. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're going to give me gold or silver, and you can't decide what to give, I'll take either. But gold is, uh, silver is not as precious as gold. It's not quite, it's, it's slightly sort of inferior to it. Interestingly, as we'll think about in a second, in the ancient world, silver was often equated with money. We'll come on to that in, in just a moment. Then the, uh, the belly of this, of this statue down to the thighs were made of bronze. Again, very strong, but just not quite as precious. Uh, back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, there were people uh, who were skilled to build things out of bronze, and then the, the bronze was often treated to make it look like gold, but it itself wasn't gold, and the longer you had these things, uh, the more the uh, bronze underneath would show through, it would chip away and rust away over time. So they knew about bronze statues. And then finally, the legs are made of iron. Now, forget about the preciousness or the symbol of the others. Iron is stronger than all of those things. And so, although it's not as pretty to look at, or it wouldn't be what you'd want to finish your statue with, there's some pretty strong legs on this thing. But then the vision zooms in on the feet, and the feet are made of this odd combination of iron and clay. Interestingly, clay was what most statues were made out of. But this statue has just got a bit of clay uh, in the feet. Now, iron and clay do not mix together. So this is not a particularly stable base for this huge structure. So that's the statue itself. Are you with me so far? Great. Fab. If you can be with me for another five minutes, that would be fantastic. You're thinking five minutes, you're having a laugh. Uh, <laughs> so then, this, that's the statue. Then, in the king's dream, there's this rock that is hewn out of the side of a cliff face, but not by human hands. That's important. We'll come back to that a few times. This is not a human design. It's not as beautiful as a statue. It's not being chiseled uh, into any sort of work of art, but it has been hewn. It's been deliberately taken uh, out of a cliff face. And then we're told this rock comes hurtling towards the statue, it strikes the feet, the legs of the thing, uh, and it destroys them all, it annihilates them all, it comes crashing down. Uh, I found these uh, pictures on a resource online that I'm allowed to use, but actually in the Bible, it tells us that they were turned just to chaff uh, on the floor, that the wind was able to blow away. And then, this rock, somehow, well, rocks don't do this, grows. Usually over time, rocks tend to get chipped and crumble away, don't they? Become, if they get hit by water enough, they become smaller rocks than pebbles and then sand. But this rock works somehow in an opposite direction. This rock grows, becomes a mountain, and then becomes the greatest mountain in all the earth. You still with me? Good, I'll, I'll keep checking as we go along. I just want to pause there for one second. The king says to the wise men, you tell me the dream. 
first. He has immediately set up a huge test. I mean, this isn't, oh, you were dreaming about when you went to school and forgot, you, forgot to wear clothes. Or It wasn't that dream. It wasn't a simple, ordinary dream. The level of detail in this dream, not just a statue, but a statue made out of four, different, four or five different materials. And not just four or five different materials, different bits for, for different parts. And Daniel tells him exactly the details of the dream. This is absolutely stunning. I mean, no wonder the king is impressed before he's even given him the interpretation. Uh, if we can just rewind for a second back through the dream, and we'll go through it again to see the meaning uh, that is there. So the golden statue, it has a, a golden head. Now Daniel, when he's interpreting this for the king, this bit's really easy. He says to King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And it's just true that of all the kings of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, from a worldly point of view, is by far the most successful. He does bring Babylon into what might be called a short-lived but a golden era of their history. So something about the head represents the Babylonian empire. Then we know that the next part of the statue represents another empire. Daniel says to him, after you, another empire will arise inferior to yours. One of the interesting things about the word silver in Hebrew is that it can also be translated as money. Now, the Medes and the Persians, who were the empire that came after the Babylonian empire, the Medo-Persian empire, was obsessed with money. They perfected the use of silver. Their, their coins were called a daric, which was named after uh, Darius the Great, one of their first and, and greatest rulers. Uh, they were obsessed with it. They were known as the money kingdom because they were obsessed with taxing people as well. So from a purely objective point of view, if you were going to look for a name to call the Medo-Persian Empire, you may end up calling it the Silver Empire because of where it falls in history. Then after that comes a bronze um, empire. So again, inferior to the one that had gone before. The Greek empire is less obsessed with money and more interested in beauty, in wisdom, in technology. Uh, if you look up when the Bronze Age happens, anybody want to guess where it starts? Greece is where the bronze sort of age sort of kicks off, and Greece has this bronze age. If you were going to think of a name for the Greek empire, you might well call it the Bronze Empire. And then after that, there is the Roman Empire. Now, these dates aren't precisely when they started, when they conquered the territory known as Babylon and ruled in that part of the world from, from then on. Now, the Roman Empire had a substance that they used for all their weaponry. Anybody want to guess what the substance was that they used for their weaponry? It was iron. One of the things, if you talk to any serious historian about why the Roman Empire was so powerful and as dominant as they were, it was because of their brilliant understanding of how iron worked. The weapons they were able to build quickly and easily and quite cheaply out of iron meant that they were a brutal force. The Iron Age, you can read, historians have written about the Roman Iron Age because of their obsession with it. So, in one dream, we have about a thousand years of history. That's just stunning, just incredible. Daniel doesn't end there. He then zooms in on the feet and says that the feet were this odd mixture of iron and clay. 
if you know much about the Roman Empire, one of their strategies was that they, would, they were after your home, but they weren't particularly after your heart. They wanted your, your loyalty, but weren't particularly bothered really about who you worshipped. As long as you called the Roman emperor lord, you could have any other religion that you wanted, really. And there was a plethora of gods that you could worship. But that led to a very, very divided people. And in the final generations of the Roman Empire, one of the things that brings it down is the internal power struggles, the divisions. One of the reasons we have King Herod, king of the Jews in Jerusalem, when the Magi come there is because there is a Roman Empire, but they're sort of appeasing the Jews by giving them this sort of puppet king at the same time. It was a divided, nation, a divided empire at that time. And even this dream, even this prophecy includes that as well. But we're not done. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, the dates that were given for it, are about 89 years. The Medes and Persian, about 209. Greek Empire, 267. Uh, the uh, Roman Empire from that territory onwards, 539. So even just a quick glance at those numbers shows a, a development, doesn't it? Uh, an increase. I was quite interested to see what that ratio looked like. So, I think it was last night or the night before, no kidding, I asked the kids to get a measuring tape for me, uh, and I said, could you measure your head, could you measure your, your chest, and then the, the belly down to the thighs, and then the legs. I'm excited. Anybody else excited about this? And I thought, what, what would it look like to, to lay that all out? And the really fascinating thing is when you look at those numbers, if you represent them visually, they're not far off a human body at all. Now, there's no way Daniel could have known how long the Babylonian Empire, how long the Persian, how long the Greeks, how long the Roman Empire could have lasted. Things like 267 divided by 89, 3. A ratio of one to three, which again is about accurate. The fact that the legs are about the same size or longer than the body, that would be normal sort of um, in terms of, of uh, ratio. It's an incredible prophecy. In fact, if you were to stop and try and draw pictorially a picture for this period of history, you, you couldn't do better than drawing a human being. This is an incredible prophecy. And then into this prophecy, uh, Daniel speaks. He speaks of a rock that will come, one that will set up a new kingdom, one that is nothing like the other kingdoms. It can't boast of gold or silver or bronze or iron or clay. It's not been chiseled. It's not been presented. It's not formed by human hands, but it will strike. And where will it strike? The Roman Empire. What was that prophecy that Mary and Joseph received? His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. He will sit on the throne of his father David throughout all generations. His kingdom will never end. Again, I want to pause there for a second. So God is speaking through this prophecy, through this dream, to a Babylonian king. Not just a Babylonian king, but the one who marched his armies up to Israel and conquered it. A king who caused such suffering and pain to his own people. A king that burnt the temple with fire, carried some of its precious items off for his personal collection. What would God want to say to a man like that? 
If God gets a shot into the dream of a person like that, what's he going to speak about? Our God speaks about Jesus. If you ever wanted a picture of grace, it's here. Our God speaks about Jesus, even to Nebuchadnezzar. If you've ever wondered, is there grace enough for me? Is there forgiveness enough for me? Has Jesus' sacrifice, has his blood got enough to hold me, to help me, to heal me, to forgive me, to save me? Yes. Our God speaks of Jesus. And the response is very, very dramatic. King Nebuchadnezzar, who make no mistake about it, bows to no one, falls down before Daniel, just overwhelmed by this revelation, by this prophecy, and says, surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. And then Daniel, an exile from Israel, is placed in charge of all the wise men in Babylon. God's ways are not our ways, are they? God is at work, though. God is doing something. It, it explains something of, of Daniel's prayer uh, as the prophecy is revealed to him. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He disposes of kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise. That word can mean hungry for wisdom. And knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. What's interesting about both of those responses to this prophecy, both Daniel's prayer, uh, prayer of praise before he goes to the king, and then the king's reaction to the prophecy, is how much of this has come to pass when Daniel speaks it? None of it. Nothing at all. But Daniel, something about this interpretation encourages him, lifts him, that place inside him, that place where your hope lives, that's got battered and bruised, starts to breathe again. He remembers. He changes times and seasons. He disposes of kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom. He reveals. He knows. And there are times on there in our lives where we ask those questions, God, is this fair? God, why is this happening? God, where are you in all of this? And sometimes we don't get that nice, neat dream that interprets it all for us. Sometimes we don't understand. But there are times when we have to trust his character. We have to trust that he knows and that he will be at work. The trouble is that you don't get this vision, this view, when you're so close to the cold face of the here and now. And there are times when, for all of us, we have to review our history in God. This prophecy was what was to come. All of us have a story in God, a history in God. And it amazes me how many times when I face a challenge, I forget my history. I forget that the same God who led me through stuff will lead me through this. The same God who preserved his people through the Spanish flu did the same thing for us during the coronavirus. We all wondered what it was going to look like. We all prayed about it, but God has not changed. And for all of us, we face different challenges for, at the moment. I, mean, I guess for a lot of us right now, our lives are being touched by this cost of living crisis. 
We're being hit financially. We're being asked all kinds of questions about what we spend our money on and what we budget for and what that's going to look like. But the same God who has been with us throughout all our past will be with us through this challenge and through this crisis. Growing up, I remember um, an album by Matt Redman. It's amazing. I don't know how many of you feel this too, how often a song can carry you through a season. Have you had that experience? Uh, You needed something, and you were praying and talking to others and reading, but it was a song that carried you. Uh, There's lots of stuff about that album that that carried me through a number of of years, but here's one I've gone back to time and time again. Interestingly, not one I don't think that's that well-known, but he says, looking back on time, seeking to remind myself of all your mercies, I can testify on every page of life your grace just keeps unfolding and unfolding. When was the last time you looked back on time and tried to remind yourself of all God's mercies? It's good for us to remember we have not got this far on our own. There's that psalm, isn't it, that says it so powerfully, if it hadn't been the Lord who was on our side, that all Israel say, if it hadn't been the Lord, the waves would have overwhelmed us. Well, I wonder how many times in our lives we come out the other side of something, and it's only the other side of something, we realize, oh God, yeah, you were with me through all of that, and if you hadn't been with me, I would not have survived it. Your grace, God, just keeps unfolding and unfolding. I thought it was amazing grace the day my eyes were open, but now I know it's amazing grace. You made me fruitful, it goes on to say, in the land of my suffering. You made me hopeful in the place of no hope, poured oil of gladness on the wounds of my struggling, poured oil of healing on the depths of my soul. When I needed a savior, you were there. You were there. When I needed a healer, you were there. You were there. When I needed my father, you were there. You were there. And then the chorus takes us to these words, you are here. You are here with me. And if I doubt that for a moment, I just look back on time and remind myself of all your mercies. And even at times if that history is marred and blurred and and broken, I can look way, way back to the cross where you have declared your love for all of us where you have declared it is finished. Sometimes we just need to review our history in God, and whenever we do, the story is the same. His grace keeps unfolding. He is faithful. Those times when, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar, we, we turn to so many other places, don't we? Daniel's really clear. There's nobody else who knows your dream, O king, just God in heaven. So Daniel's answer is yes and no. Do you know what I dreamt? Well, yes, I know. I didn't know, but God told me. It's so important, is it, that we keep our eyes on Jesus. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He's our sacrifice. He's our way, our truth, our life. No one comes except through him. So why are we looking in other places? And in this dream, it's easy to get obsessed with a statue, but don't forget about the rock. 
The statue gives you a, a large view of history, the faithfulness, the sovereignty of God over it all. God holds it all somehow in his plan, in his purpose, in his will. He doesn't plan it all, but he's able to use it all and bring it all uh, to his good purpose, his good and, and pleasing will somehow. But also God is somehow part of this story. Unseen. Silent unsuspected, a rock is being hewn out of the mountain. God is chipping away, bringing his purposes out. And nobody would have thought that it would be a rock that would bring all these kingdoms down. Nobody thought it would be a crucified Messiah who would usher in the reign of God's kingdom. There's a wonderful prophecy about Jesus. In the ancient world, often they would build with, with just rocks and stones that were available. It was a lengthy process to chip them into the right shape. So they'd find a, a strange stone, a large stone, that they could build a house around. It would function as the corner on which all other stones would be built. And it's said about Jesus that the stone the builders rejected, the one they looked at and thought, no, we can't use that, that has no purpose, has become the chief cornerstone. This is Jesus. What did Jesus say right at the start of his ministry that began his, his public preaching with the Sermon on the Mount? And he kind of launches into that with so much about this is what it means to live with God. This is what life in the kingdom is all about. Then he gets to the end of it. He tells a story about a wise man and a foolish man. And uh, the, the, the foolish man goes off and builds his house down on the beach because he likes the view and he wants to be near the sand and the the wise man builds his house on a rock, which is much more costly, much more sort of time-intensive. And then the storm comes, and the wind and the waves beat against the houses. And of course, it doesn't matter how big or pretty or special this house is, if the foundations aren't there, it's not going to last. It's swept away, but the house on the rock stands. And Jesus says, those who hear my words and put them into practice are like people who build their lives, their houses, their hope, their future on a rock. What's really interesting about all those different empires that we've listed is gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. They, they speak about different things, don't they? Gold speaks about the best, the, the highest status. Silver about money. Bronze about beauty. Iron about strength. And each of those four things can be ways in which we try and build our lives. I just need more money. I just need more power. If only I was stronger, I had more force in this. If only I looked like that. If only I had that kind of body. None of those things stand. And when all of those kingdoms come crashing down, what are we left with? There is a rock that does not move. So what does that look like from the bottom of the well? when the writer to the Hebrew Christians is trying to wrestle with this question. He quotes from a psalm that talks about how Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, and yet everything was put under his feet. And then he goes on to say, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. That's, that's Jesus. But we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, 
he might taste death for everyone. This is Jesus' kingdom, not built on force, not built on what I can shout at others, not built on how much I can get or how many toys I've got in my little collection when I die, but a kingdom built on this. He has tasted death so that when the moment comes that my beauty, my intelligence, my strength, my body fails, when I face those last moments, I come to death and I will not have to taste it. It's lost its sting. It's lost this power because he has tasted it for everyone. This is his kingdom. It's not a kingdom that marches on people's lands. It's a kingdom that defeats our rebellion. It doesn't win us with swords. It wins us with grace. And that kingdom has endured. You look at all those kingdoms we've listed that have come and gone. And yet the name Jesus is more famous than ever. More people following Jesus now than ever before in human history. We don't yet presently see everything sorted out under his feet, perfect, fair, but we see Jesus. I'd love to just read a few more words that come from uh, this um, incredible thing that has been written from, from the Ukraine. For years, my colleague, Anya, a Ukrainian philosopher in Poland has provided assistance to Ukrainian families with children who needed palliative care. Since the beginning of the war, she's been working hard to evacuate children from the fighting zone. Each evacuation requires coordinating many people, transport, funds, fuel, and so on. Together with some friends, we helped Anya through several complicated evacuations, each bearing witness to the incredible cooperation and beauty of solidarity. In one instance, evacuating an oxygen-dependent child some uh, 632 miles required special transport. And through social media and privately approached friends, we collected the necessary funds for this within two hours. After the end of the war, one of the most difficult challenges for us will be, will be to switch to peaceful life and the return of war to its proper place, a fragment in the totality of our existence. But for Christians, this liberation from the totality of war must begin now. So how can this happen? It happens when we experience the hope that the infinite reality of the kingdom of God inaugurated on the cross overcomes any totality on this side of history. In prayer, in worship, in the solidarity of the church, in the beauty of sacrificial love, we experience the life of the age to come, in which there will be no more death, or tears, or mourning, or pain. What a hope we have. This was written in a war zone. That hope will get us through all earthly totalities, even one as terrible and as deadly as war, will one day give way to the infinite glory, peace, and love of the kingdom of God. What a hope we have. So where are we standing? Where are we looking? What are we looking to to get us through whatever we're facing? Where does your hope lie? Let's just pause to pray together this morning and 
at the moment we're going to sing together, but I'd love to just offer the opportunity if anybody would like to receive prayer today, if there's a situation that has rocked you, challenged you, stretched you, and you'd love just to pray with somebody today, I'll make my way over to the, the prayer space and perhaps the one or two of the elders might come as well. And if you'd like to be prayed for today, we would love to stand with you.